1: This month's top agent is Sam Miller with Remax Stars in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Last year he closed 203 transactions. In his best year he sold 380 homes and during his career he's helped over 3,500 families move. He operates a team with seven members, one closing manager, one listing manager, one marketing specialist, one online marketing assistant, two buyer agents, and one team leader. Sam Miller is the team leader of the Sam Miller team. He has been an agent for 26 years. He works the Knox County, Ohio market. Sam started real estate when he was 18 years old, directly out of high school. He mentored under his successful grandmother for the first year and had a quick start. Sam continued the concept of family practice when he added his wife and later his daughter to the business. He will describe the keys to working with your spouse and child. Sam has built a powerhouse team in a very small market of 15,000 people. Over 20 percent of the town is a past client. His monthly market share has been as high as 30, 40, and even 50% of his entire MLS. Sam is a proficient marketer. He talks about a wide variety of lead generation, including magazine ads, newspaper ads, direct mail, postcard, marketing reports, brochures, yard signs, movie events, sphere of influence, geographic farming, first-time buyers, video emails, branded websites, stealth sites, and more. Sam describes how he prepares for listing presentations. He shares scripts and dialogues that he uses to find the seller's true motivation before he goes to the house. Sam carries over 100 listings at a time. Sam also talks about the benefit of a partial release versus a short sale. Plus, we'll hear about his team, shadowing and mentoring, and profitability. First, a quick word from our sponsor, real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Sam. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a moment and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Sure, I was in high school. How old were you when you started in the real estate? 18 years old. I got in right out of
2: high school. Why did you decide to jump into real estate so soon? I had a grandmother that was in the real estate business who really inspired me. I always thought I wanted to be an attorney, and I went on a lot of appointments with her when I was young. And, uh, and so it just, it just seemed natural. I mean, it just, I was, I saw the day-to-day operation of her business and I just thought it would be a perfect fit. When you started up, did you work with your grandma? I did. I did. I trained underneath her really aggressively for probably a good six months to a year. Did you have a quick start or a slow start? I had a fairly quick start. I mean, compared to most agents that come in the business, just because, you know, seeing what she did and learning the things that she knew and, going on appointments. I was essentially shadowing another agent every day, you know, going on appointments with her. and So it just brought me up to speed a lot faster than what it would the average agent. How long have you been in real estate now? I got my license in 1986, so I'm 26 years in the business. That is a career. That's a career. And how many homes did you sell last year? I had 203 transactions last year. How many homes have you sold in your career? 3,500 homes. A little bit more than that, probably. And my biggest year ever was 380 transactions in a single year. That would have been in 2003 at the peak of the market. What has changed since 2003 to
1: now that their volume has changed? Was it the change in the market? It was definitely the change
2: in the market. It was also, uh, we went, that was such a robust market where people would uh, put their house in the market and it would sell instantly and they would buy another home. And now the dynamics have changed where a lot of the people that are selling their home, they're selling because of distress situations, financial issues, employment, where they're not in a position to buy the second home. So as far as the listing side, we're probably doing every bit as well, where our challenge, of course, is is after I sell the client's house, they may not be in a position to replace it. So previously back between 2001 and 2006, every buyer we worked with was essentially, unless they were a first-time buyer, they were two worth two transactions, uh, a sale on their end to sell their existing home and replacing it with a new home which obviously triggered more sales to take place because the house they bought, those folks would want to buy a home. And so it was a massive domino effect. And when the people stopped buying replacement homes, it slowed that mid-range and upper end of our market. We're in a very small market, so we felt it, you know, much more than, than a very large metro market might.
1: Where is Mount Vernon, Ohio?
2: Geographically, I'm in just about the exact center of the state of Ohio. Small town. Fifteen thousand people. It's the area I'm in is Knox County, Ohio, and so Knox or Mount Vernon about fifteen thousand, and the county is about fifty-five thousand people. So we're relatively small.
1: Is Mount Vernon the largest city in that area? Then?
2: Yeah, it is. Mount Vernon is what they call the county seat. It's the largest populated city within the entire county of Knox County, and we're geographically located about an hour from Columbus, about two hours. Uh, from Cleveland, and about three hours from Cincinnati. So anyone that's familiar with those areas, it kind of puts it into perspective. What's the main type of
1: industry in that town? Is it farming? Is it manufacturing? What's going on there?
2: Mainly agriculture. That's huge because, you know, small community, but big acreage. So lots of farms. And then also some manufacturing. They have some some oil and gas manufacturing companies here, which certainly helps.
1: So are you mainly selling single-family homes, or are you
2: selling larger parcels Farm and ranch. The core business that we do is single-family, our residential homes. Some might be with an acre or five acres, but it's definitely not hundred-acre farms. That sort of thing. That's not the bulk of our business. It's it's single-family, face-to-face buyer and seller.
1: Describe your current real estate market.
2: The average in our market, the average price is in the 130 range. It's been anywhere from a hundred thousand when the repos were really heavy, and we were seeing a lot of lower stuff sell upwards of 150. We're a little lower than that right now because we're still recovering, so to speak. Time in the market is over six months, so you got to get to know your clients fairly well, even if they're priced real well, because there's so much home sale contingency situation that takes place in a slower market.
1: Are you seeing the prices then trend back up, or have they flattened out? They still falling?
2: Uh, we're definitely on the flat side. Uh, there are certain segments of our market that have not hit the bottom. There are other price uh, in air locations where we're definitely at the bottom, or at least it feels like we're at the bottom. And we see very little trending upward at this time.
1: If you were to look out at your market, the overall market, what percentage of the properties are are retail or equity sales versus REO and short sales?
2: Say 75% are equity sales, and then the balance 25% are either foreclosure sales, short sales, or some sort of distressed situation.
1: From the top of the market to the bottom, how far do you think that it fell? Did it fall off by 10% or 50%?
2: I would say it depends on the area. We have a lake resort in our area that the lower prices were hit really hard, and they were hit more than 30%. We have a waterfront uh, section with homes on the lake, and those were barely hit. Those barely came down. Residentially in our community, though, like in Mount Vernon or the surrounding communities, we saw every bit of 25 to 30% of the equity just dry up overnight. Now, the challenge with that, of course, is that, you know, we could have sold the folks the house, See, in 2005, they have an employment change now where one of, the, one of the spouses lost their jobs, and it just makes it really, really difficult because they owe far more on the house than it's worth, let alone before you subtract out any selling expenses.
1: Short sales still do not account for more than 25% of the sales. You still have 75% of the people who are at least above water or are figuring out how to clear it out. And so that's why I was asking how far it fell down. Is that because they already had some equity in their homes? or people just bringing a lot of cash to the closing?
2: It's a combination of both. If they bought the house prior to, let's say, 2001, or they didn't use it as an ATM machine and pull all their equity out, a lot of them still had equity even with the reduction in value. And then the flip side is, a lot of other people are bringing cash to closing. A lot of them are negotiating uh, loan balances with their lender and carrying some money forward if they don't have the cash because they don't want the short sale or the foreclosure. And you mentioned earlier about the 25% in short sale. That was a combination of short sale and foreclosure both combined, that 25%.
1: So the majority of the people, 75%, are, are just figuring out a way to make it work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And from our perspective, in a lot of the cases, it has been better for them to do that.
1: Do you have any kind of niche, or would you consider yourself more of a generalist?
2: I would definitely say because of the size of our community, you have to be more of a generalist. In our market, there's basically somewhere in the 600 to 800 transactions a year, depending on the year. And uh, so with those, that few number for an entire board of realtors, you've got to be able to do all of it.
1: You actually have a huge market share. I mean, if I'm doing that math right, you have like a... Anywhere from a 30 to a 50% market share of your entire market?
2: Well, there have definitely been months where we've had close to 50%. You know, that's the the total number of sales. My number, I gave you 203, is number of units or transaction size. So you have to actually take that number and times it by two. So on average, I can have 20% uh, market share pretty easy. How many agents are in your board? Uh, We've been anywhere from on the high side, 140, 150. I think we're down now in the 80s, 90s. And the the challenge with us is we're surrounded by boards. So, like Columbus is huge. It's a metro area with 5,000 people. So we constantly have agents from that market coming in and trying to cherry pick stuff in our market as well.
1: Could you give us a list of the different ways that you're generating
2: business? Sure. Kind of fun. We're still doing print marketing. You know, so many people talk about print marketing not working anymore. One of the things that we found is our success rate with print has actually gone up at the time that most of our competitors pulled out, and I think for a couple reasons, one of which is it's something they can hold in their hand, they physically see, it still makes that uh, impact. And the second thing is so many of our competitors got out that all of our print, the, the news, the uh, magazines, the direct mail postcards actually stand out probably 10 times more now because I'm not competing with most of the other agents when it comes to print. So that's a big one. I mean, that's, that's a significant portion of our, our business that comes from marketing is, is still print. And then the other thing with print that's so sweet is so many people claim that you know, online marketing, you know they're doing 80% of their business from online marketing, but what they don't tell you is that they're still doing segments of print that are collateral marketing to drive business from the print to the web. And uh, so that's, that's key for us because everything we do in print drives it back to our online marketing. So and then obviously online marketing is massive. Our sold sign marketing and our, our for sale sign marketing is huge. We're using a, re, a reflective real estate sign that practically glows in the dark. So that has been significant. Uh, that's probably been one of the better things. I would highly recommend that to any agent that's considering upgrading their real estate signs is definitely go with the reflective signs. Would you consider print direct, Mel? Sure, because it is, it is a form of print. It is a tangible print item. So I definitely lump that in together. Then let's break those out individually. Let's start with. Let's just pick one. How about the newspapers? Probably three percent of my print budget in, comes from newspapers. Not not a huge segment. Did it used to
1: be larger, and you reduced it,
2: or has just always been a smaller source? Definitely was a larger portion. Probably at one time it, it was more than twenty five percent of our our budget. But as internet came along, you know, it really that part really
1: grew. And so the three percent. What are you doing there in the newspaper still? What have
2: you retained? What's still working? Special announcements, something really unique, like a property that you've got that you just, you want to give it that extra push. Sample monthly payments. If someone, you know, if that market is, I've got a bunch of houses in a certain price range where the sample monthly payment is as cheap, if not cheaper than what the average rent is, that's a great way to drive traffic back is, you know, someone can afford to pay what they are for rent you you can flip them over onto a house, and that's significant. So that's probably my best stuff going right now in the newspaper. Those are display ads versus a classified ad? It's more of a classified ad. It's just a, uh, a text line item ad. Okay, so it is classified. Yeah, and the neat thing is you can go into the for rent and the homes for sale section, even if you're not with a place for rent. And that really has helped as well, because you have people going looking at at Homes for Rent, and you, know, you have a house for under 800 a month or under 700 a month that they can buy, and our average rent in our area is like 815 So it's like, why wouldn't you buy if you could? All these things that we're going to be talking about in print, you're driving people over
1: to your online site. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. How about magazines? Lots of print in magazines. I run anywhere from a low side of 15 pages a month in a magazine to as high as I think we're running 22 this month. All the listings that we have, we run, you know, all of them in the magazine until they close. What kind of magazines are these? The traditional homes book type magazine, like a Homes and Land, a Harman Homes. Uh, it's it's the just the traditional homes magazine you would pick up at a grocery store, or at a shopping center. It, it's not anything unique; just a basic ad. What type of business are you generating from that? Are you generating buyers or sellers? almost all buyer business that comes from that. Now, obviously, some sellers pick them up thinking about maybe doing something, but the bulk of the initial calls that we get comes straight from the buyer. Describe your ad. What does one of these pages look like? It's usually an 8.5 by 11 sized ad, about one-fourth the top of the page is our top banner with our contact info, a web address, uh, and then basically we'll have 12 houses on each page, with street address always. We always put the street address as the headline of the ad. We always list the number of bedrooms, baths. It's a basic verbiage ad, and we always, always put the price in the ad. goes against what a lot of people are preaching, but it works for us. Are these full color? They have not been full color until just a couple months ago. Our magazine just converted to full color, so they are now. But previously, for the last 20 years they've all been black and white magazines. And it didn't hurt us because there was no color magazine that they were competing with. I mean, we're such a small market, it, it didn't matter.
1: How are you doing a call to action? Are you asking these people to call you on the phone? Are you sending them to a website? Are you doing the old fashioned IVR, the 800 number? Where are you pushing these people?
2: We're out of the IVR entirely. We're not using IVR any longer and haven't for a bit. Um, we're driving them to the website. Every page has got the website in two different locations. For more information on these properties, visit, and it's got the web address, knoxcountyohio.com, and then obviously we have local phone number and toll-free number. Um, We still get a tremendous amount of phone calls off the advertising, a lot of call-ins, hey, the house still available. And the neat thing about these magazines is it takes from when you turn the ad in until the book hits the street, it's about three weeks old. So some of the things they'll call in on are under contract or sold, and so that engages you in a whole different conversation about what it is they're looking for. So just opens the door. How do you track whether this is successful? When
1: they go to the website, are they having to enter some kind of code or hit a certain landing page? How do you know that those leads were coming from the magazine?
2: We don't, if, if they go to the web and they don't physically call us, it's harder to monitor how they got to us. That requires us to correspond with them when they'll reach out to us and request more information on a house by the way, how did you find this property? And that's how we'll find out uh, if they find us from the web. From the phone call, they almost always are saying, hey, I'm calling from the, you know, Holmes Magazine or, hey, I saw this house in the magazine on page 13. So we're logging in every time someone calls. We're tracking where that lead came from. What percentage of your print budget are you you're putting in the magazines? Oh, it's the, I'd say the print budget is probably 15% of my, of my total budget. Of your overall budget, your overall marketing budget? My marketing budget. No, not of, not of my gross revenue, no. That would be too high. You're putting out a lot of pages
1: each month. How many calls is that generating? On the, you're, you're tracking your phone calls.
2: How many phone calls is that bringing in? It's a couple hundred on the low side. What other print marketing are you doing? Definitely direct mail, postcards. Mainly, we're doing a lot more just sold than we are just listed, but we'll do some just listed. Those can vary from as few as 200 per listing to as high as, say, $550. And, and what determines the difference is obviously the price range of the property. So, But we're doing that. And then um, the brochures for the brochure box, we're doing full-color brochures. We get a tremendous amount of calls for people going to the site from the brochure boxes, A lot of people have went with the QR codes, but they're a little harder to track. And the the brochures work. I mean, it's a pain in the tail to keep them full, but we literally get tons and tons of leads from the brochure boxes. How do you know that? How are you tracking that? Number one, we're getting, I mean, we're filling the boxes literally weekly. So we know clients are driving by the home and picking up the info, which is, it goes back to the idea of all the advertising we do has the street address of the house as the headline. So people know where the home is before they even call us to see if they like the house. So we're not fielding you know, a bunch of low quality leads. We're trying, from that aspect, we're trying to get the A and B, the people that are really hot, ready to do something. Those are the calls that we're really shooting for, for the telephone. The internet leads is totally different. You're getting a combination of A, B, and C quality leads. But yeah, we're getting calls directly from those uh, brochure boxes. Hey, I'm in front of the house. I pulled the flyer out of the box. My office hears that almost a daily basis. So you're not using an IVR
1: or one of these text-backed message riders. You're just using the traditional
2: brochure. I am using the traditional brochure, and I'm giving them enough information where they can determine if they are actually interested in the home. So a lot of people say, just give them enough so that it forces them to call you. And that's, that's fine, but I, the calls that I want the people to be dealing with from the direct phone call, I want them to be a little better quality. And by giving them that info, it definitely increased... Our quality of a call.
1: These postcards you said you're sending out just listed and just sold? Yes. What makes a a just listed or just sold postcard successful?
2: Definitely street address, definitely good pictures, definitely the price uh, and then we target it to the area where the house is located in in most cases because most of the neighbors that live in that area are very curious and that's an easy way to buy market is you become the neighborhood expert really quick if you're consistent with that message.
1: On that postcard, are are you naming the neighborhood or stating that you're the neighborhood expert?
2: No, I am not. But they get enough cards from us in that area very consistently so that they recognize, hey, this guy's doing a lot of business in this area. And we're such a small community that most areas don't have neighborhood names. It's either Mount Vernon East, Mount Vernon West, North, South. So, because we're an older community. Average house here is over 100 years old. Inspections must be interesting. They can be very interesting. But if you set the stage up front that the people aren't buying a brand new home, I mean, you're looking for safe, sound, sanitary, you know, that sort of thing, you know, it, it's, it's not difficult. Are you putting your picture on all these advertisements? Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely branded uh, in everything that we do. Do you brand yourself or your team? It's still mainly branding me. And, uh, it, it's, I mean, some of our marketing is, is team focused, but mainly, you know, cause I do all 100% of the listing appointments. And so those are the calls that we're gearing on. So we, most of that marketing is done in me. Are you
1: doing any other type of direct mail? We've talked about just listed, just sold postcards,
2: any other type of mail that you're sending out? Sure. Market reports, telling what's happening uh, in the market. Those are less frequent. Those are more quarterly based how many homes sold in that area, what the averages are, what the competition is, um, you know, what percentage of homes last year did not sell. That's always a, a hot topic that people talk to us about. They can't believe because everyone assumes that every house that goes on the market at some point will sell. They don't realize that half the houses for sale will never sell in this market. So but we we share that type of information. And that's that's kind of the bulk of it. And of course follow I mean all your past client sphere of influence pieces that you mail. You know, we do monthly mailers to those. Quite a bit of your
1: business is coming from past clients' and sphere of influence. How are you doing that? How are you generating a consistent relationship and that business coming in? What are you doing to make that happen?
2: Well, there's a lot of things that we do. One, you know, there's people that haven't sold a house to for 15 years, and they're still in our system, and they're still helping us, referring business, talking about us, and sending families. So, you know, we don't give up on anybody. Uh, you know, as long as they're loyal to us, we're definitely staying in touch with them. And uh, So we're doing postcards that way. We're sending information. We track everybody when, when they buy a house from us, what interest rate they bought at. So when I see an article uh, about the interest rate dropping, anyone that's got a higher rate, you know, we'll, we have those databases separate. We'll shoot a note to them just following up. And it doesn't benefit us to get them to refinance, but it does benefit them. So we're trying to help them. Um, so it's, it's stuff like that that we're constantly sending out. Do you have a
1: formal plan to go out to the past clients? Are you trying to contact them a certain number of times during the year?
2: Yeah, the answer is yes. And we try to hit them 22 times a year. And then I do movie theater events where we invite all of our, our clients to movie theater. And I basically rent a movie and, or the theater and, and have a special movie event. And, and we're doing different things like that in the community. And like I hooked up with a, a local furniture store and, and negotiated a 15% reduction on furniture purchases. And the company and I, we create cards that we send out to my clients. And if you hadn't bought in 10 years, you still get one of those discounted cards. And and so I'm doing little things just to stay in front of the client and to help them and to add value. How big is this database of past clients and sphere of influence? Well, we've sold about 3,500 properties. Our database for that group is actually a little bit more than that. Some of our clients obviously have gone through divorces, so we've had to split up. And so some of the sales that we've made end up becoming, you know, two people instead of just one. But it's a little over thirty-five hundred just for the past clients in the sphere of influence. Are
1: you just adding to that
2: database by past clients, or are you, do you also have some kind of system that you're trying to build your sphere of influence? Mainly, it's past clients uh, or vendors that we work with. We're we're constantly wanting to build, but we don't. We when we build the database out, they don't go into that group. We'll create new segments or new, uh, new database fields for a different group. And an example would be if we had an event like at the Apple Valley Lake and, and we met you know 30 people, then I'm going to create for that specific event a database field so that I can send, them, uh, send everybody a, a letter that's special to that event. If I put them in the normal database field, they're going to get dumped in with everybody else and they're going to get something that's not as personal. And really, the personal side of it, uh, like if you attended an event and then you find out all the things that happened at the event, maybe you weren't aware of, or you get copies of pictures. You know, it's easy for me to do it that way. Where if I lump you in with everybody else, it's very tough. My goal is to get you in as a past client, you know, and obviously then you're you'd be in two groups at that point.
1: What kind of information do you try to collect on each individual? I assume you want their name and their address, phone
2: number. What else? You want their email address? What are you trying to gather up? Property type is important. Do they live in a ranch? Do they live in a two-story? Where do they live? What school district are they in? Do they have kids? Do they not have kids? Are they retired? Are they employed? All things that make a difference on the types of things that we can use to drip with them because we've got a lot of really nice drip programs that we've built over the years to stay in contact with them. I'm getting USA Today online every single day. I see tons of articles that I think apply to my clients. If you're a dog lover, I've got a group of couple hundred people that are dog lovers, and you guys will all get uh, an email that'll highlight an article that USA Today did with a link. So I'm again, I'm trying to make that personal connection with everybody. So you're customizing
1: your, your communication as much as you can. Yeah,
2: I am. I am. And I think that is where, you know, where I'm getting basically about 40% of my businesses, you know, past clients and referrals. That's how you're able to amp that way up, and with the number of past clients that I've got, which is pretty significant, and it's growing, I mean, there's a point I could probably stop everything that I do and just be a word-of-mouth business with no marketing whatsoever and probably be a very successful business. It's not my goal. As The market rebounds. We'd like to ramp back up and do four or 500 units a year at that time, but we need that backside of the transaction to take place. We we need to, instead of just selling them one house, we need to be able to sell their house and, and have them purchase another for us to get back into those numbers. Yeah. You know, I was just
1: realizing 3,500 past clients, uh, that's like 20% of the town.
2: <laughs> it's pretty close.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about these, this past client contacts, you said 22 times a year. Break that out for us. What are you doing to contact? That's like twice a month. How are you contacting them?
2: Well, a lot of it's email driven. A lot of it's like the couple times years, of the time change, you know, notifications, letting you know to set your clocks, holidays, your anniversary, your own personal anniversary, like for your marriage, your birthday, your spouse's birthday, kids' birthdays, all with cards, you know, the home anniversary of the purchase, the market, couple market reports at least four times a year. And then any any articles, and email, uh, email is a totally different animal as far as making those connections. So, you know, if, if you're in five of my database groups, one, you're a dog lover, two, you love auto racing, you're constantly getting this type of information as well. So it doesn't take long until you hit 22, 25, 30 connections a year. Plus, in a town the size of ours, with the number of listings we carry, you're being in influenced by our real estate signs every single day you can't drive down a single street without seeing a couple of our signs
1: these 22 contacts most of them are email are some of them also
2: mail outs or hard copy of that group of the 22 probably 16 17 of those are actual postcards most of them are postcards then yep yeah like the anniversary is a card birthdays are card so and that that usually equals five of those contacts Time changes twice a year. That's two more. So they add up quick. You mentioned movie event. How often are you doing the movie events? Well, we like to do the movie event at least once a year. It's just a good face-to-face event. And and we've done something unique with that. And that is that I get to be the guy behind the ticket counter. So when they come in, we have a confirmation number. They'll walk in. They'll give me the confirmation number. And and, and with the number of houses we've sold, you can't remember every single person that's bought and sold. Or one of my team members might have sold them a house. So the confirmation number, when I cross-reference it, it's got their name on it. So then it's easy for me to say, hey, hi, Bill and Jan, how you guys doing? You know, and and it's just that another personal connection. So, and that, that has worked spectacular. And it's, that's an expensive event, but it's one of the best things that I can do for good PR and good connection. And always after that movie event, we'll sell five or six houses because of that within a month or so that probably would have never happened otherwise. So it pays for itself instantly. Who do you invite to the movie night? Are you inviting everyone in your database? All my past clients. So anyone that's bought, sold from us, anyone that's referring us business, the vendors that we do business with, and, of course, the active listing inventory that we have at that time. So any, any house that's for sale at that moment, we'll, it will invite those clients as well. How many people show up? Well, our most successful event, uh, we actually had to book two theaters So we had to book two different movies and have them run the same movie simultaneously. So that was 650 people. We're very strategic in how we do it. We do it when the movie theater is not open. So we actually open it up a couple hours on a Saturday morning before the theater normally would open. And uh, that way we have, I literally control the entire movie theater. So from meeting them, for the movie, a brief introduction before the movie starts. I like, can get in front of the crowd and thank them for coming and appreciate their business. And, and just make it short. It's not a commercial or anything. It's just a big thank you. And uh, it's almost always a movie for their kids. So it's not a, anything where I have to worry about anything controversial, which is worth a lot. You know, I mean, we've done, like, the movie Cars, and we've done Shrek. And, I mean, I've just done a bunch of them. Are they usually current-run movies? Or are they sometimes older movies? No, they're never older movies. They're brand new runs. Uh, the movies here usually release late Thursday night, Friday for the new release. I always do the event on Saturday. So the movie's been out literally one day. So that's, And that's one of the ways that makes it really cool is that, hey, they're going to get to see a first run movie and they're going to see it for free. It's been huge. It's been really a big event.
1: And you said you go in front of the crowd right before you start the movie. How long is that and what are you saying to them?
2: It's one minute to a minute and a half, and it's basically, hey, guys, I really appreciate you know, all the support you've given us. This has been a great year. We couldn't have done it without you. I hope you enjoy the movie. And it's not much more than that. I mean, it might be, hey, you know, the market's doing this, but it's literally one minute, just long, and we don't run any of the, the normal preview stuff that runs before a movie. They literally kick the movie on, and we go straight to the movie. Are you providing food or drink? None. The concession stand is open. We basically are providing the, the seats, the tickets. And, uh, and the, the thing we learned after we did the first event, first event, obviously, anytime you do something the first time, it's a little bumpy. It was very successful, but you, you can easily overfill a, uh, a theater, very easily with the number of past clients that we have. And uh, so everyone, they all got postcards in the mail and emails, both, that they had to call our office to receive a confirmation number. And we basically were keeping track of how mi- by the number of people that called us, we knew how many people were going to attend and so, you know, like if, if you were bringing a family of, of three, you know, it would be Sharoni 3 was your confirmation number. And, and then what we did is we were able to continually keep a running tally. And then when you came in, you said confirmation Sharoni 3, and then boom, I got it, cross-reference, mark your name off, hand you the tickets, and you're in the door. And, uh, that, was, that worked so well for us because we would have had a lot of disappointed people if we didn't know how many people were showing up and we had 200 extra people that we had to turn away, that would have been a disaster. So instead, we immediately called the theater and said, guys, we got a problem. We've, we're way overbooked on this. Can you get us a second run? And they said, well, we'll, we'll definitely do it. And, uh, and the neat thing is, since it was not a movie that was run during a normal time, I was able to negotiate a much better price per seat. So it saved us some money as well. Because that's how, they, that's how they, they charge us, per ticket.
1: I like how you're doing the confirmation number. It's their name and the number of people that they're going to attend, so you immediately know who it is when they walk up.
2: That's exactly right. Because <laughs> how many times in our business have, have you ran into somebody and you go, I know them, I know them, but you know their name, you probably think their street address, you can't think of their name at times, and it's happened to all of us, and it was just one of those things that solved that problem.
1: That's genius. Plus, because of having the confirmation, you already know who's going to show up, and you might study your list real quick.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's great. Yeah, because that's a fear of mine, and I'm sure many others. So that's that's excellent. Do you have
2: banners up in the lobby? I don't. I don't. I bring my moving truck, and the moving truck is no longer a moving truck for clients to use, but but it was at the time, but we still bring it. It's parked out front. And I'm actually dressed fairly casual at the event instead of in business attire. I'm I'm basically like them. I actually sit in the movie, watch the movie with them, with my family, and and it's just a good connection. But but really no banners. But I don't need them because there's no one else there except my clients. And and what's neat is it brings all these hundreds of people together that all bought uh, and sold homes through us. So they're it up. You know, Sam was great. He did this and that, and, and and they're all together. That's the one thing every single person in that room has in common is that they did business with us. And uh, so the buzz is, is usually really high. And the thank you notes we get, it's fun to see the little drawings that the kids do with crayons, you know, because it, it's always a kid's type movie where the parents send it and say, hey, really appreciate it. Little Johnny, you know, he wanted you to have this. And so again, it's, a, it's an emotional connection that you make with your clients. And it's, and it's, it, it's valuable. I mean, that's one thing you just, you can't run an ad that'll do that. Vendors. Do you have vendors show up or participate in this? I have vendors that I do business with that I appreciate that I invite to the event. I do not reach out to them for any financial assistance whatsoever. I, I take this on myself. They benefit from my business, but they help me in a lot of other ways. So I don't mean financially. I just mean, you know, we you know we do enough business in our community that they appreciate us. And when there's a pinch, they take care of us. And, and that's really what we're looking for. I'm not looking to get in their back pockets and they don't get in ours. What is the cost of putting on an event like this? I mean that could be depending on how many people we get, it can be 3000 it can be $4,000, depending on how many people actually are going to show up. Uh, we did one on, it was about three years ago, four years ago, we did it three days before Christmas, and it was a Saturday. And we were way overbooked because everybody was in town and they wanted to bring all their family members uh, from at, who were visiting them for the holiday from out of town uh, that one was bigger, but you know that's you know you learn, and that was kind of a cool thing to be exposed to all those folks, even though we hadn't sold them homes because all the people were saying, hey, my realtor's putting on this event, uh, so that was that was significant. We were probably unprepared for that many people, but we made it work. Is the theater charging you per person or per room? Per person, so you're paying for every person, and they don't they're not charging me per room because we're not doing. The event during normal business hours, we're doing it before they open. So we're doing a morning matinee, so to speak. And uh, so they don't have to, I don't, because otherwise people would be wanting to buy tickets for the movie while, they're, while I'm there dominating the room. I wouldn't fly. That's why we wanted to do our own. So it's
1: coming down to maybe $5 a person. Does that sound about right?
2: No, it's more than that. I want to say now they're, I think matinee in our area, the normal tickets are $9. And I think we were paying six fifty or something. It can be an expense, but again, it's it's great money. I mean, it's great money spent for a long-term benefit. Did you
1: have to guarantee the theater a minimum amount or minimum number of people?
2: Yeah, but I, I think it was only like fifteen hundred dollars minimum. We've never been close to that. It's always been more. And they and they they sell all the food and they sell all the candy and popcorn and everything, and that's works out for them just great. That's why they're willing to do it for us. Because that most of these movie theaters don't make that much money on the movie. A lot of that cash goes back to the company, the production company. It's They make the money on the food.
1: You mentioned earlier, and I want to go back to it, your signage, your yard sign. You said that's working well for you. Let's break that down a little bit. You said, first of all, it's a reflective sign. What color it is, and what do you mean by reflective?
2: Well, I'm with 3 so it's red, white, and blue. Reflective, just think of a stop sign, a yield sign, any traffic sign in your community that's posted and Your headlight hits at night and the sign basically glows. That's basically what my real estate sign does. During the day, you'd never know it was reflective at all. But at night, driving down the road, your headlights hit it. You you can see it 100 yards away. You know it's my real estate sign. And I'm the only one with Remax that's got reflective signs. So my signs literally are advertising 24 hours a day. I assume it costs
1: extra to have this reflective material?
2: It does. It's almost double, but... It's a one-time purchase, so it's very, very inexpensive. And in a community the size of ours, I've got over 100 listings plus arrow signs. You can imagine how many times you'll see those day and night. I mean, it looks like it's the only real estate sign for sale. I mean, it looks like I'm the only guy. How many directional arrows are you putting out per listing? It depends on where the house is located. If it's on a main road, probably no directionals. If it's tucked back a street, it might have two additional signs pointing to that one sometimes three there's a main road that i can put an arrow directional and then a side street too so i mean i have right now about 350 real estate signs that are up in our entire county so i mean i'm not joking when i say there's not many streets you can drive down and wouldn't be exposed to to uh, our signage and it's huge And when you get a sold sign up in a market i mean it, the buzz is massive and we obviously follow that up with sold signs So if they didn't see the sign, they see the postcard. And in the market that we're in, and I think this is significant for the listeners, you know, there's so many people that either think every house sells and then the people that don't think that think they can't believe any house is selling. So when you're sending out just sold cards with a street address and it's in their neighborhood, it gives them a positive feeling that there's activity and, and we're the ones usually providing that information. So we're the ones that usually call
1: the directional arrows are they also using this reflective material yes they are do you have a brochure box then latched to the
2: sign we do we do and they're a clear view brochure box we learned our lesson since we have winners here you always want to be driving by the signs and make sure that the the brochures are full you don't ever want them to be empty we used to use the the color fronts where you couldn't see inside of them so in the snow you had to get out walk through the snow lift the lid to see if there was so we figured that was a mess. So we, we ended up buying some really neat clear view that clamp right onto our sign, and you can drive by and see if there's brochures in them or not. And we'll usually put 35 to 40 full-color flyers in them, print another 30 to 40 that we put in an envelope and give to the seller and have them keep them in their kitchen drawer. That way, as a system, if it starts to go low, they don't call us in a panic and say, hey, we're out of brochures, because, of course, they want you to refill it in five minutes. So instead, they'll reach in their drawer, pull the brochures out, refill it, then call us and say, can you send us a refill of brochures? We just used our backup. You have no idea how much time that simple system saves us over the course of a year. It's massive.
1: How many brochures did you say? Did you say how many you give the seller at a time?
2: 30 to 40, you know, 35, 40. So we're basically printing 70, 75 flyers all at one time in the very beginning. Those can last anywhere from two weeks to a month sometimes longer if it's on a a less traveled road, but we go through a lot of them.
1: And then when you're ready to do refills, do you just mail them out to the homeowners or do you actually have to send someone out there?
2: Uh, That's the beauty of the way we're doing it now is you just mail them. Before when they would call on a Saturday in a major panic because they're out of flyers and they got people driving by going up to the sign and they're all upset. Oh, we're out of flyers. I can't believe you let it go empty, which 10 years ago, that's what happened. And we just come up with this system and yeah, we just mail them because they've got the backups in the kitchen. So just so simple. So simple. Simple systems. Yeah, and you know, that's when you think about real estate, that's really what it boils down to. It's a lot of systems, but they're all for the most, I'd say 99% of them are very easy, but you just, you have to do it consistently. Do you
1: have your picture on the sign? Or are you using riders above or below?
2: Both. Obviously picture, uh, color picture uh, of me on the sign, my name, direct line, telephone number that rings directly into my office, and bypasses uh, the main Remax. It is a Remax number, so because legally in the state of Ohio, I'm not allowed to direct them unless you know it, it's a company number. It is a company number. It just happens to ring into my team instead of the front desk. And, and the reason we did that, obviously, is we don't want to have an opportunity to lose any of the calls coming in. We don't want someone else grabbing our leads and not telling us they called for us. So we get all of our own leads, and that makes the conversion so much better. So, but I have upper and lower uh, signing riders. One is the web address; the other is the traditional for sale rider or sold rider. And but the other has our web address.
1: You mentioned when the sold rider goes up, you're getting a lot of activity.
2: Have you done anything on that sold rider to make it stand out? We did one that just said "Sold Fast" by Sam Miller, and we don't use that on a lot of them. I mean, if it's if it's sold in a week or two weeks or something really quick, then we'll use that. I do a sign writer that says reserved before you get through the home inspection process. Once it goes under contract, if I think the deal feels good, will put a reserve sign up because no one knows what reserved means, and that generates even more phone calls. Hey, I saw the house down the street said reserved on it. What does that mean? Now we've got an uh, opportunity to interact with the folks that we wouldn't have had otherwise and then sale pending, obviously, we don't get calls for sale pending, but that creates a buzz because, hey, I see you got a house down the street, sale pending. And again, when you're in a small community, you run into a lot of people all the time and everyone wants to be talking real estate with you. So it's just a great interaction for us. I want to make sure I got that order correct. When
1: it goes under contract initially, did you say you put the sold sign or the reserve sign?
2: We put reserved. Reserved goes up first, meaning that, you know, Mike has reserved this house meaning you're in, you're in contract, but you probably have a financing contingency. You probably have a home inspection contingency that we haven't worked through. Now, the benefit is we'll obviously tell the buyer who calls, okay, the house is under contract with the buyer, but it's subject to a home inspection, subject to financing, so we don't know if it's 100% solid. Let's take your name and number. We'll follow up with you. By the way, you know, we've got three other houses in that price range. Would you be interested in having us send you some information or show you in those homes? It just creates one of those opportunities that you wouldn't have had otherwise. But if I put sale pending on it that, that very same day, I won't get that call. When do you put the actual word sold on it? There's two steps before that, but the, when, it, when I put sold is the day it closes. So our market, it's not sold till it closes, and there's been agents in the state of Ohio that have had their license suspended for saying a home is sold when it isn't because they stopped the activity on the home for their seller. And we actually had someone in our board of realtors that was reprimanded for that. So we have to be very, very careful. So that's the reserve makes perfect sense. Sale pending makes sense, but it stops phone calls. So once the home inspection and the financing are solid, that's when the sale pending sign goes up and then sold goes on the day that it closes. And how long do you get to keep that sold sign up then? It depends, Mike. If we, if we had the buyer and the seller both, I might have that sign up for two weeks. Now, if it was a co-op sale and I had it listed and someone else brought the buyer, then that varies. Some people want your sign down, they want to have their sign up, or they may have their sign next to yours, and that's fine. So, but, you know, it could be three days, five days. You know, normally, if it's our listing and we do a lot of in-house deals, it could be two weeks. You're asking your buyer when you're,
1: you're working both ends, you ask the buyer if you can leave the sign up a little longer because that's giving you great exposure.
2: Absolutely. And I've never, I have never had a buyer who bought a home from us that we had listed that said no. I mean, in 26 years, they've never said no.
1: When you are just working with a buyer, let's say a first-time home buyer, and they purchase a home, are you putting your sign in the yard after the sale? I wouldn't put the
2: word sold. We have a special writer that says bought through or bought from. And it's got our name and it's our real estate company. So, so the answer is yes, I would put a sign up at some point. You know, in, in part of in a small community, you want to get along with all the other agents. You want their cooperation. So I don't rain on the other agents parade. Some people would think, oh, Sam's going to make us take the sign down. I'm not going to make them take their sign down. I might tag mine after they pull theirs down. We might put our sign up at that point. But, you know, you've got to get along with everybody in your market or you're not going to have any co-op sales. And with the inventory we've got, I want everybody showing our stuff.
1: Let me switch to a different topic. You mentioned geographic farming. Are you farming a certain area?
0: Yeah,
2: the whole county. I have databases, 20,000, a little over 20,000 people. And most people can't. I mean, and I say that almost jokingly. It's not a joke. It's, it's serious. But most people in a larger market could never do that. But they could break down zip codes in their area they want to work or massive subdivisions that they want to be known as the area specialist. Our community is just small enough that I can get away with doing the entire county. Are you doing something specific to those
1: entire 20,000? Are you mailing out 20,000 pieces of mail each month, for
2: example? Or how are you targeting that farm? Four times a year, everybody's getting a, a state of the market housing report from us. Everybody. Anyone that's got a mailbox, I don't even care if they live in an apartment, they're going to get a piece from us in the mail. It's going to basically say how many sold how many didn't sell, what price ranges were hot, and it's just some basic information. It's on a postcard, and everybody gets that. So that's four, four pieces of marketing they're going to get through direct mail. So, and, and, of course, you probably know direct mail has gotten much, much, much cheaper because now the post office has the deal where you can mail everybody on a postal route, and I think it's close to $0.12 cents or $0.11 cents or something now. I don't even have to put labels on them or anything if I send a mass saturation out Significant savings because it would have been like forty-five or fifty cents for because I'm doing half you know the postcards are like half-page type postcards, so cut the cost way way down.
1: It's a half a sheet of paper to jumbo size card.
2: Yeah, jumbo size card. I think it's eight and a half by five and a quarter. I think is the exact dimension. and We just have a company print them for us, and, and you'd be shocked what a good deal you can get if you tell them that we'd like to print twenty thousand of these. They're used to hearing people say two hundred. So the year twenty thousand the price goes way, way down. sure, and with
1: that discounted mail cost, that used to be your biggest cost uh, combined that's that's not too shabby that you can actually hit a lot more homes now
2: you can and i can I can put literally almost five times as many cards out for the same price in and it's not that's probably four times, but still it's significantly more, which is why we went to the half page card. the postal rate was exactly the same doing this a new deal through the post office and I know the internet is eating the post office's lunch right now and that's why they're running these specials but it's good for us. Anything else that you're doing
1: farm specific? You've got these four postcards going out a year, these quarterly cards. Anything else you're doing to stay in front of your farm?
2: Yeah, so the four goes to the entire county then I break each area like all the people that own properties at the Apple Valley Lake they're on an entirely separate farm. I literally built a website specific to the Apple Valley Lake so that people would recognize me as the area expert. It's not even my normal real estate website. It's a totally separate, fully branded site, applevalleyohio.com, that is for that community that I sell real estate in. So yeah, we're, all the flyers, all the updates, the new listings, the solds, all that stuff is going every time we list uh, or sell a property, say, at the Apple Valley Lake. So these people are hearing from us very frequently. How many of these unique
1: separate websites for a subdivision or an area do you have?
2: I really only have the one specific to Apple Valley because it was a big enough market that it would support it. You know, you wouldn't want to build a bunch of micro sites that took a lot of maintenance to keep up. One, the search engine optimization would be really tough to stay on top of. This one is easy to stay on top of, and we're on page one with Google. I mean, that's with all the, all the different communities and the clubs and organizations in that area. I mean, we're, we're ahead of all of them.
1: You said it's large enough to warrant this. So how big is this area, this Apple Valley Lake? How many homes are in there? About 2,600
2: homes, and there's about 6,600 lots. Now, the lots, the balance of those obviously are undeveloped, but people own them. So we do some lot business as well. And as I said earlier, single-family homes is the bulk of our business, but we do some vacant land. You know, we'll do multifamily. Are you sending out your postcards to the lots? No. The normal postcards are not going to the lots because the rate of return would be too low. But they are getting the quarterly, the four-card quarterly. Theirs is specific. Those lot owners are specific. Only two Apple Valley lot sales. They don't get any of the house sales or any of that stuff because it's pretty much irrelevant to them. They have a lot that some, someday they're going to sell or build on. So they, theirs is very, very infrequently, only four times a year. And then we're driving them back to the website as well because we're blogging about sales activity on the site as well.
1: So this one subdivision or area, Apple Valley Lake, is it's about an eighth of your entire
2: town. It's about 15% of the whole town. Is that correct? No, it's because it's not in Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon's about 15,000. That's part of the Knox County. That's part of the 55,000 number. So and like I said, there's 2,500 homes, 2,600 homes there. That's one of the ways you expanded beyond your town then. Yeah, and I, I pretty much had to. My, my goal at one point, and, and for 10 years, my goal was to sell, close a deal a day. I needed to do 365 transactions, and I had that goal for 10 years. And, and I got to like 309 and 322, and I kept getting close, but I couldn't get to 365. I mean, I was just, it was killing me. So I just, I just had to grow where I wanted to do business so that I had a bigger opportunity to do it. So and that's exactly what we did. It was just a, just a mental shift because you're only going to get so much market share no matter how big a community is because everybody's got a cousin, everyone's got a brother, they know someone in real estate. So there's only, you're only going to have so many, so many available options, I guess.
1: Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now back to the show. These websites are you building them yourself or you using a company to help you with
2: that? Yeah, I'm definitely not building them. Real Pro Systems has built uh, several really, really good sites for us. And they maintain our primary site uh, in our Apple Valley site. I've talked with Rob Levy and the Real Pro
1: system. We've heard a little bit about it. Are you using their branded or their stealth sites?
2: I'm using both. KnoxCountyOhio.com is a custom branded site that they built for me. It's geared you know, strictly on my real estate business in Knox County. Then they built the gold site, that's the, the brand model of the site they built for applevalleyohio.com. And, and then I have stealth sites, like I have Knox County Bankowned.com, which is a stealth site that's geared strictly on bank-owned buyers, buyers that are looking for bank-owned homes. This is the golden home run. If you're going to hit a home run, a grand slam, this is probably one of the best ways to attract buyers, and that's to advertise, you know, bank-owned listings. You don't have to have any bank-owned listings to do it either. That's the other beautiful thing. And then people will literally will fill out a form on a website requesting information on bank-owned homes. And, uh, and then, of course, you get their name, phone number, email address, and then you can follow up with them regarding bank-owned homes. The, the thing that most people don't get in the real estate business, I always hear people say, well, I don't want to sell bank-owned homes. I don't want to be in that business. They don't have to be. Most people who register to buy a bank-owned home never buy a bank-owned home. The whole reason that they registered is they are looking for a home that they think is a really good deal. They really don't care if it's bank-owned. They just are looking for a very specific home in a specific price range. So in the MLS, you have the ability to, to provide that along with bank-owned homes as well. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's probably the one best thing in the last three years that we did to create more convertible buyers. It's a stealth site. They don't know it's necessarily
1: coming from you. They just think it's bank-owned homes in your area. They're filling out a form. You're getting their contact information. What's the key to converting them into a buyer?
2: Following up with them. It's sending them the information on the available bank-owned foreclosure, bank-owned homes. And then after they get that, we use a video email system where we can actually record a video email uh, and send it to them. It's kind of a welcome type thing. So you know they don't know they're dealing with you know Sam Miller team when they fill the form out. They certainly know it within five minutes of receiving the first email. And uh, but we're giving them everything they want. The connection rate is huge because again nobody else in our market is doing it. Number one. And so I kind of look at it as if how can you make a buyer raise their hand and tell you they're a buyer? And this site is exactly that. It causes them to raise their hand, reach out to you, connect with you telling you what it is they're looking for. So it's, it's just a natural, natural way to gain extra business you wouldn't have had otherwise. I, I would say one out of five of those people that contact us, never buy, they never buy anything at all. Uh, and it's a smaller group versus our email home search, but the connection rate, if you can get four out of five of them to be active on a regular basis and interested in buying. That's huge. Because I mean, in Internet leads, you're lucky if you can close 3 to 4% of an actual inquiry. And these these rates are way higher. How high do you think it is? Well, I think if you you work it, I mean, you could close literally four out of five of the people who are serious, they would buy a home. You just have to give them exactly what it is they're looking for. And again, lead incubation, this isn't something you'll sell the first day. This may be something you're working with for six months or a year before they're in a position to do it or you find them the right house. But it's a, t- it's a much more motivated buyer in most cases. So many of these people aren't buying these houses to live in. They're buying these houses as an investment. And that's why they're looking for bank-owned Some are contractors that are interested in buying. You know, do have a, we're in a, a community where it gets really cold in the winter, so these contractors want houses to work on in the winter because they can't do outdoor repair. So they can buy a house as a project to keep them going through the winter where they're get them through until spring where they can do outside work on homes and make money. You don't get the same number of leads, but the leads you get are much higher higher quality. They're more closable.
1: You mentioned that you follow up right away with a video email.
2: What does that mean? Well, we have the ability instead of just sending a normal email, I can follow up. I can literally sit in front of my computer. I use a MacBook Pro. And I can, within one minute, I can record a quick video, and then I can send you an email that has that video embedded in it. So instead of just saying, hi, you know, it's Sam Miller, you'll literally see me saying, hey, thanks for filling the form out. We're happy to help you. In you know, addition to bank-owned homes, you know, we can also help you with other homes of exceptional value, divorces, estates. You know, are, are those the types of properties you're also interested in, or do you just want to know about bank-owned homes? And so it's, it's something totally different. It works on their iPhones. So if, if they get the video email on their iPhone, they click it, it plays. It opens up their YouTube browser. It's totally confidential. No one else can see the video. It's not listed where it will show up in the search engines and stuff. So, but it's just, it's just a neat thing to improve your connection rate. Do you remember the name of the company that you're doing that through? Yeah, RealPro Systems.
1: Oh, it is with RealPro itself. Okay.
2: Almost everything I'm doing is pretty much through RealPro, except my original website I built 15 years ago. Everything else I'm doing is directly through them. It must be working. It's working amazing. The year, year that I did 380 transactions, I think we probably had half the leads that we were getting at that time was coming straight from their sites. So it was, it was huge. So it's a great product. You mentioned you're working with a lot of first-time
1: home buyers. What is the source of these first-time home buyers?
2: Combination of brochure boxes, people just driving by interested. So that's a big one. We have a, a website that we promote in magazines and in different places. Email Knox County Homes, which is basically a free service that you can register to receive automated listings sent directly to your email, which obviously is, is set up through Real Pro as well you would be shocked how many people at any given time will sign up for that. Like right now we've got about 1,000 buyers in our incubation system. Now, be- being very realistic, not all 1,000 buyers are going to buy, but it's nice to be able to be constantly updating these people with your branded information and market updates because they come around to the housing market, the values, and you've got at any time you could do, let's just say you did 50 sales a year off that 1,000 and just say 5% of the people buy, that's pretty simple because it's an automated system. It doesn't require a lot of effort because it's got a drip campaign built into it. So you're staying in touch with them without staying in touch with them.
1: How are the people being driven to that form? Are you driving them there from the print? Are they finding it through SEO? How, how are they getting there?
2: Print, back sides of the brochure boxes, that's helping. We're blogging information about it. We're using like ActiveRain. We're using Craigslist different places with links, and it, it's just a combination of just good marketing.
1: What do you think a first-time buyer needs? What's the difference between working with a first-time home buyer and a move-up buyer? What are they looking for? How are you providing that? Why are they going to you instead
2: of somewhere else? I think the reason that they're coming to us, probably the most simple reason, other than if they're filling out the email home search, is that they see they see us, they recognize us, We're a pretty well-known name in the community, so they're familiar with us, so to speak. And uh, so I think that helps us. And then we're offering a lot of of online options where they can look at stuff online without having to talk to anybody. And and that's a big thing a lot of people, first-time buyers, don't want is they don't want to be hounded. They just want to kind of move at their own pace, especially the folks that are heavy in the internet. And that seems to be coming more and more the first-time buyer. So we provide a lot of information, give them the option to drive by the homes before they ever call us. So we just, we take a more friendly approach instead of, you know, trying to just hook them by, you know, getting them to call in on something. Any other keys to success with first-time home buyers? The financing aspect, the monthly payment side, being able to get them in with little little cash out of pocket, because in our market, a lot of people right now with the economy don't have a lot of cash. So creating some real good options, uh, I think, is is. Pretty key, but again, just making the process really simple for someone, less intimidating, and then having someone available to help them. Because I I don't, I don't work with a lot of first-time buyers, but I have two buyers agents that do.
1: When you're working with a buyer in your
2: market, are you requiring them to sign a buyer agency agreement? I am not. I'm not requiring them to sign a buyer agreement. I never have anybody sign a buyer agreement. They're free to bail on us at any time if they want to. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but, you know, it can happen. But there are times that there, we'll meet with a buyer that we're not sure we want to work with. We just think that, you know, there's it's a potential challenge, so it's an easy way for us to separate. And basically the thing for us is, you know, it's, it depends on their attitude. You know, I, someone who wants a $200,000 house for 40000 it's pretty easy to not get involved in a situation like that because that's just not realistic how
1: do you create loyalty with the first time buyer if there's no agreement between you
2: cuz we're constantly providing them updated information we're not leaving big gaps of time where they hear from us we're giving them specifically what it is they tell us they want following up with them as new houses come on the market letting them know about it hey we previewed this particular house we thought it might be what you're interested in i mean i got the i got my team where they're very specific and their duties they have to do with buyers they i mean Anybody could be a great buyer's agent if they didn't have to run the rest of the real estate business. If all they had to do was work with buyers, do daily searches, help them with their financing. It's not like trying to be an agent doing every aspect of the business. So, and that's basically where I've got people committed that that's what they do. Accessible is important. Let's talk about
1: sellers for a minute. You've got, what did you say, over 100 listings out there right now? hmm
2: that's correct. Why do sellers hire
1: you? What is your competitive
2: advantage? I would say there's probably 10 to 15 serious advantages, but the ones that, the reason I think most of them call us is we have a reputation for getting their homes sold. They know we're actually selling homes in the market where most of the other agents are not, uh, or they're selling very few. You know, probably last year, just on the listing side, we probably sold 20 times uh, more than the next closest competitor. And uh, so they know we'll get the job done with better marketing, better technology. You can go online and, and compare, and that's what a lot of the people do, the sellers, they'll look at what we're doing versus you know the other the other companies. There's so many agents that their sites are haven't been updated in you know ten years. So just, you know just the different approach. we've taken a more proactive approach. Plus we're very active in the community. Do you send out a pre-listing package? There's two, two answers to that, and that is it depends on the, the property. In a lot of cases, we don't. What we do is, we used to years ago, but a lot of what we're doing is the pre-listing interview on all of our appointments and just asking a series of questions about the process of, of them selling their home and what's important to them and have them tell us about their home. Are you doing the listing presentations? I do all the listing presentations. So every listing appointment, every listing we have, I personally met with the seller. I don't do the pre-listing interview. My wife or Courtney, uh, my leads manager, uh, listing manager, she and Carol, my wife, will ask the questions before I go out. Do
1: you use a canned or standard listing presentation?
2: Uh, no, I, I do not. I actually take my laptop based on the, the answers that they gave my office when they did the interview uh, will depend on what specifically it is that I talk about. So I have, I have some very specific things I always talk about but I'm trying to gear it towards what specifically it is that they want to know. I mean, I could spend, you know, I could do the same presentation every single time and I'd probably be there three hours every single time. So we pretty much narrow it down to the three or four really key things. There was a, a book that I read called The Wedge and the book talks about what is the one thing that you offer that's different that the client wants that makes the difference in them hiring you. And uh, so using that concept Find out what it is that's important to them and then show them how it is that, that, we, that we work that helps them with that. What are the common things that pop out of that,
1: that review that you're doing up front, what's the common item that's the wedge that you're discovering? I, I assume there's just a few of them that keep popping up over and over.
2: Well, well sure. Uh, we want to get as much money as we can, but we want to get our house sold. That, that, that's always, if there was a number one thing, that usually is it. And so you have to demonstrate what it is that you do that's different than everybody else that causes your houses to sell. And and we ask up front, I mean, we ask a series of questions of the seller so that I know that when I get to the appointment. And I won't go over the whole list with you because it's extensive, but basically we want to know where the house is, you know, how they would rate the condition of the home. Would they say it's below average, average, above average, or outstanding? Have they made any major improvements to the home in the last five years? How many bedrooms, how many baths, square footage, things of that nature? And then some of the key questions, where would you estimate the value of your home to be? So I'll ask you, Mike, where would you estimate the value of your home to be? I figured maybe one fifty. So Mike, I haven't seen your house, or my wife would say, you know, Sam hasn't seen your house, Mike, but what would happen to your plans if your house wouldn't bring one fifty? What if it would only bring one thirty eight? What would that do to your plans of selling your home? Well, that'd make it a lot more difficult would you still need to move or would you th- second guess it and maybe consider keeping the house or renting it?
1: Yeah, we probably still need to move.
2: Okay. And, and do you think that's really important information to know before you go on the appointment? I mean, you just went from a, a B listing appointment to an A plus because you're motivated. So, and I'm, I might gear my appointment now on timing because timing now is ultra crucial because you need to move. And you might say, well, I'm taking a job in another city. We have to go. We've got to be out of here in 60 days. I would never know that without them asking those questions. Do you ever cancel a listing presentation
1: based on the answers to these questions?
2: Normally, I don't cancel. I may personally call if it's one that's really iffy. And so I may, I may do a follow-up second call. They'll book the appointment, and I'll just follow up by phone. Just say, hey, really appreciate you calling us. Just had a couple questions. Do you have a few minutes to talk to us? And then whatever the issue is that I'm concerned about, then I'll kind of go over and have them explain to me a little bit further. So you're trying to figure out the motivation on that call
1: to find out where you're going to go in your actual appointment itself. And you're also trying to identify their, their hot buttons or hot issues. What other wedge items are popping
2: up? a lot of times they were listed with another real estate agent. And so that comes out in the questionnaire. You know, and, and, you know, why do you think your house didn't sell is one of the questions my team immediately asks. And it's always interesting to hear or read the responses of why they thought it didn't sell because it isn't what a normal real estate agent would think was the reason. So and then that gives you a little bit of a spin in what direction you're going to go on the appointment, how you need to address it.
1: What kind of things are you hearing back that we would not assume we would hear?
2: i probably give you a couple, uh, one of which is, you know, they, they advertised our house really great, but it just didn't seem to attract any buyers. You know, that, that's something that we hear. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense. They advertised your house really great, but it didn't attract any buyers. That, how can that be? So, of course, but that tells you when you learn that, that it's probably an issue of price. Or, you know, they did a lot of advertising, uh, didn't have any showings or didn't have any offers. And then, of course, my office would say, do you know how many second showings you had? What did the feedback, uh, what feedback did you get from your realtor telling you what the people thought? And, and again, all we're doing is we're digging to find out where they are mentally in this process.
1: Going back to your original statement when you're doing this preliminary interview, if I had mentioned that the value of the home I, as the seller I thought was 150, and you either know from the area or pulling up some quick comps that it's, it's only going to be 110, I assume you're going to call me and if I'm not willing to come
2: off to 150, what's going to happen? Well, it depends on what your response is and your reasoning behind it. I mean, I might go three or four deep in my questioning and I'll do that with you right now. So, see, so you, Mike, you're thinking the house you really need 150, but it looks like the market's only going to support somewhere in the 110 range. Do you see where that might be a problem? Yeah, cuz I need 150. What is it that's causing you to need 150,000 in order to get your house sold?
1: Well, I just really need 150.
2: Well, I, for me to be able to help you, I kind of need to know if it's something I can help you with cuz in a lot of cases it is, but I don't fully understand what your is it your loan balance is that high or you need that much to buy your next home? What's causing you to need that 150?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed Sam, but I took a second out on my home and and my balance is right around 145. I I really need to get that 150.
2: Hey Mike, I totally understand and got a lot of clients that when the market was really hot, they got real high appraisals. Now, of course, the market, as you know, is adjusted downward, and, and so we've got a lot of people in similar situations. If there was a way that I could help you sell your house, you wouldn't necessarily net the 145, but I could I could get your house sold and help you with that. Would that still be something you're interested in? And all I'm doing is I'm shifting gears to try to work through it because I know it's not going to bring 150, but I want to see how open-minded you are to going in a slightly different direction. And then when
1: you go over there what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about either a short sale or taking a note back with the bank that's personal. Is that the direction you would go?
2: Absolutely. If, if you're buried in the house and there's no chance I can get you out and the house isn't worth it, there really is no other option for us or or just not taking the listing. Now, if you say, no, I just have to have 150, then that's the at the point where I would say, well, let me do this. Let me have your email address. I'll shoot some information to you. I'd like you to look over And then I would like to talk to you once again after you've had a chance to look this information over. And then I'll send them all the recent comparable sales by email right from my computer. They'll have a chance to look it over. And my discussion will be something like, you know, if you were a buyer in the market looking at homes and you saw these homes could be bought for 110 and they're somewhat similar to yours. If you were a buyer, would you pay 150,000 for your house? And the seller would say, well, probably not. Based on these houses available, well, all buyers buy based on comparison that's what's going to happen when we show your house and people are looking at other homes as well. You'll help those other homes sell. And I'm just as gut level honest as, as I can be, but there are times I can't help people. That's okay. You mentioned
1: earlier in our conversation that rather than short sales, a lot of your sellers are taking back a personal note with the bank. Did I get that correct? Is that true?
2: You did. You absolutely got that correct. How are you negotiating that with the bank? This is a situation where the people have The people who don't do the short sales in most cases are the ones that are wanting to immediately go out and buy another home. They're buried in their house and they don't have cash, but they have the ability, they wanna keep their credit spotless. They don't wanna move into a rental, they wanna buy another home. So they're current. So we're working with a local bank to have them have the ability, in a lot of cases, to do exactly that.
1: Are they taking out a new loan or are they getting the old lender to carry the balance that's not being paid off with the sale.
2: We're basically doing the second part that you just said. What we're doing is we're doing something called a partial release where the bank will release the mortgage from the property at the time of sale, but they're still obligated to a carry forward on the debt. So they're not wiping it off their credit that it's not owed, but they work out a payment arrangement. A lot of times they'll recast the term since there might be a five ten $10,000 balance that's still due. But the bank's a whole lot smarter to do that than to get into a short sale situation. The buyer doesn't want the short sale situation because they need the bank to turn around and finance them on another house. And we're able to do that in a lot of cases.
1: Is this often a local lender, or are you doing this with
2: big national banks as well? It's mainly with smaller local lenders because we're a smaller community. I have done it with a few larger banks. I've done it with banks where they have the first and the second mortgage both. Because back, I mean, years ago, we were doing a lot of 80-20 split loan type deals, you know, back in the uh, early 2000s, where they had an 80% first and a 20% second, and we're getting some carry forward on some seconds. And we've got a loan program where I can sell people houses with little or no money down on the entry level type homes, and that works. And, And the difference, the bank is still getting whatever interest rate they negotiated in most cases which is better than they could get today. I mean, you look at the rates, they were in the early 2000s, they were significantly higher. So for some people, it makes sense. The people that are typically doing this, are,
1: are they more often moving up to a larger home, down to a smaller home?
2: In most cases, they're moving up. There was something that happened in their family that requires them to need something bigger. But they can't sell their house.
1: Let's do this. Let's talk about your team. How many people do you have on your team? And then walk us through the titles and what these people are
2: responsible for. I have seven people on my team, including myself. And of course, mainly what I'm doing is negotiating contracts, doing listing appointments, and coming up with new marketing ideas. That's mainly my my position Uh, and team leading. My wife, she runs the closing department. She handles all the contracts as they go pending sale. She takes over, works with appraisers, works with home inspectors. She's following up, finding out where things are at, talking to sellers, helping negotiate with home inspection issues, things of that nature. I've got a listing coordinator, Courtney. She handles, once the listing comes back, she enters everything into the software, does the initial follow-up with the seller and introduction. She does all the showing feedback, follow-up with the seller until the property goes sale pending. and Of course, that's when she hands it off to my wife. And they literally sit in the same room across from each other. They can hear each other's conversations, so they both become aware of where things are at at any given time. So that makes it very, very nice. Then I have a marketing person who's licensed. But as soon as I list a house, he goes out measures the home photographs, starts working on a lot of the marketing, the brochures, MLS, all that. So I don't have to deal with that part of it. He's very good, uh, better than I would be myself. That's the, that's the benefit to the seller. And he's a photographer, so I mean, he, he really gets some amazing shots that I probably couldn't get. So, and then he's licensed also, and he so he does real estate sales in addition to that. But his primary job is marketing, uh, and then he'll you know he'll do twenty five thirty sales a year uh, on top of that. And then I have two buyers agents that all they do is is show homes, work with buyers, help them with financing, and, and do the closings. And then my daughter, she's worked for me for a long time, but she helps with she's sixteen. She helps with uh, additional marketing. She's helping me with blogs, building community information for our websites so that we have better search engine optimization so our sites are better found. And she's good with, good with that sort of thing.
1: Let's talk about your buyer agents. Do you have a quota that they have
2: to achieve each month or each year? That they have to sell a certain number of homes? Well, in the peak of the housing market, you know, they were doing 50-plus deals a year themselves, just feeding off of the leads that we were doing. Uh, that we were creating Joe Joe's you know he's doing a whole nother job plus that so his quota is not as high but he actually hangs with the other team members a lot of the times too because he's helping me with other projects where he's picking up leads but yeah they they have to do 25 bare minimum to even stay there they're not doing 25 it's not productive for any of us and I would have to put someone else in that position now they tend to do more than 25 but but that's the bare minimum standard And that's in the current market we're in.
1: I assume that you're paying your buyer agents just a split or a commission?
2: Actually, I I have one that is on a a flat salary, and I have one that's on a a 50-50 split. And then Joe, who works for me doing marketing, I have him on a normal salary for his normal job and then a much lower split than 50-50s on much lower because he's getting paid through the other salary.
1: That's very unusual to pay a salary, a flat salary. How's that working for you? How did you structure that to make it work?
2: Actually, she came to me to make it work based on some very specific circumstances. She lost her husband, and uh, so she had a specific need. And Initially, I was kind of skeptical. I thought, well, the production level is going to go down if we do this. What I found is that wasn't the case at all. What she was looking for was security, uh, and so it worked out in my favor from a financial standpoint that I actually net even more money now, and she's happier because she knows exactly what she's going to get every single month. And so great salespeople aren't always motivated strictly by how much money they make. Some of them, depending on where they're at in life, have other circumstances, and so sometimes, sometimes you have to ask the right questions, and in this case, it just worked out. She was someone who was already working
1: for you, so you already knew her track record. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, she had worked for me at the time before I put on salary for 12 years. Yeah, and, and her income in her peak years back in early 2000s was a significant six-figure salary, not salary, but commission that she brought to herself. But like I said, circumstances in life change, and so that worked out. Are all the people on the team licensed? No, I have two. My daughter's not licensed. She's 16, and then Courtney my listings coordinator is not licensed, but everybody else is licensed. And I, I pay, and that's I want to make this clear, I pay for each of the team members' remax bills and I provide all the office space and all the technology.
1: You mentioned that you're working with your wife. How long have you been working with your wife?
2: Twenty two years. So it's been a while. It has been a while. It's been wonderful. How do you make that work? Certainly there are days when each of us is having our own challenges where it becomes more challenging but you both have the same goal i mean that's the if if she's having a tough seller then i quickly learn which sellers are tough and who i need to talk to more frequently in order to keep that calm it, it's certainly harder when the average days on market is much longer you know back in in the early 2000s when the houses were just you know put a sign up and a couple months later it was closed that was awesome but the longer market you carry more listings and inventory Longer, where back then you'd carry forty or fifty listings, but they were constantly turning. So there's more of a a stress level that's taking place in this market. Plus, people are having challenges financially right now compared to what they did back then. So it's just a different environment, but but we make it work. I mean, 22 years doing it, and we keep on going and doing fine. Was she already an agent before you teamed up together? No, she was a school teacher. So and I, I was the one that brought her in. And she actually worked, worked part-time initially and kind of liked it. And the business kept growing and growing and growing. And we both kind of looked at each other and said, I don't think teaching is going to be in the future for you. And she kind of agreed. <laughs> but at that time, I think I was doing like 50 deals a year or something. And you know, we were trying to go to 100. And, uh, and, and I think once she came into the picture and we met a guy named Ralph Robertson, in Warren, Michigan, who really inspired us. And I think we went from 50 deals to 80 deals almost instantly, and then from 80 to 129. So the writing was on the wall right away of where we were going, and uh, so two of us working together just it was awesome.
1: Have you learned anything along the way that makes it easier to work with your spouse? In other words, do you compartmentalize? Maybe you each have a certain area that you're an expertise at, and and leave the the rest to the other side. How are you making that work so you don't conflict? Or do you conflict on decision-making?
2: We rarely conflict on decision-making. That is very rare. She takes over once the house goes under contract, which I'm only pulled in at that point if there's a challenge. I mean, she's moving the papers and we're using systems, so everything moves usually pretty smooth. So, no, we we don't have a lot of uh, conflict where our conflict is Mainly is if you have a, a customer that has unreasonable expectation, and usually it isn't that they're they're difficult people. It's they've got something going on in their life that's just creating a massive amount of stress, and we're the first people that they can reach out to and say, "Hey, you got to do something more. I got to get my house sold because they're going through a divorce or whatever their circumstances are." And that can be stressful. I mean, it, it can be stressful, but you know, we both kind of work through it. And like you said, we departmentalize them. I've got a whole different set of duties. She's got a different set of duties, and. Pretty much, kind of run our own thing.
1: How did it come about
2: that your daughter works for you? That came about back in when the the personal marketing phase was really big in real estate, and the personal promotion was huge. We were using her in a lot of advertising because you know she was she was young and cute. We were putting her in ads, and and that worked out great. And that became a uh, nice way for her to make a little bit of money. Uh, we would obviously pay her for that, and and then she's interested. I mean, she loves technology and a lot of our business is geared on technology. So so it's just been a nice fit. But she doesn't, you know, we don't have her on insane hours or anything. I mean, She's still in school. So, you know, we respect that. and She plays sports, but she's able to help and, and that's worth a lot to us. You talked about
1: shadowing and mentoring. Did you shadow and mentor agents early on other than your grandmother?
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the guy that really boosted me is Ralph Roberts out of Warren, Michigan. And, and what I loved about Ralph was he was the first guy that I had ever heard that was selling a house a day. I mean, I think he had done 365 deals back in the in the 1990s, which was major. I mean, that was a serious accomplishment. And so I wanted to find out what he was doing different than what we were doing at the time at 50 deals a year. I mean, I knew there had to be something major difference. And uh, so we uh, called him and scheduled a time and went and, and paid him and, and spent – a day and a half with him in his real estate office and I rode around with him all day on appointments and my wife worked with his admin team and it just opened our eyes to what was possible. There's no chance we would have ever been able to do what we're doing now if we hadn't personally experienced what he was doing and and through the years we've shadowed a lot of other top agents that are selling 400, 500, 700 homes a year and you see their systems and how they work and then you fine tune yours and then now we've got people coming in all the time doing the same thing with us. How many people do you think you've shadowed over the years? I've shadowed at least 10 very key agents that contributed to our growth. And I probably shadowed another 10 on top of that that helped us, but maybe we didn't have the gigantic leaps or shifts in our system. Like we shadowed Joe and Sharon Falco from uh, Roselle Schomburg, Illinois. And the, what we gained from that experience was a whole different outlook on marketing. They were doing so much in-house that within a couple months, we'd made a fairly major investment at that time into new printing technology, new computer technology, so we didn't have to wait for companies to generate our stuff. And, and that was worth a lot. I mean, I spent time with Stanley Mills in Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, my wife and I drove down about a week before Christmas and, and just spent a day with Stanley and his staff and just to see what he was doing because he had such a personal connection with his clients that we were like trying to, to mimic that where we could connect with our clients on a much more personal level instead of just strictly being business. And, and he was a master at that. And Alan Dom, I spent a day with Alan. At the time, Alan was probably selling 600 units a year and had an 80% market share in Philadelphia selling high-rise condominiums. And so we were saying, how, how do you gain that kind of market share? What is it that you have to do? And so we were just constantly wanting to see it and learn it so we could implement it
1: why not just get on the phone and call them up? What's the difference between talking to them and actually
2: being there? Well, I can tell you something or I can show you. And which do you think you'll remember? Most of us are very visual people. And that's why marketing, the visual side of marketing works so well, because it makes a connection. And so seeing it happen was worth a lot. I mean, I've probably spent, I don't know, thousand dollars $40,000 with agents shadowing them through the years. But You know, every bit of it contributed to our bottom line and helped us grow our business. It was well worth it.
1: Now, you've turned that around. You've become the expert, and people are shadowing you. Are you still doing that, having people shadow you?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm still doing it. I'm not doing it as often because it definitely does slow you down as your production each day. But I certainly will take a couple people a month that want to come in that are serious about growing their business and, and help them. There's a fee to do that. These things are not free, correct? That's correct can you tell us how much you charge somebody to shadow you yeah for for one day just coming in yourself is 1500 and 2000 if you bring a team member and team member stays and works with our staff while while you will basically spend the day with me on appointments but like i said we don't you know we only do a couple a month and i do it more to to give back just because that's how we really grew but if i don't charge for it people don't take it serious and people try to abuse it just come in and and just spend the day and so if you keep a little price on it, you, you weed out the people that are just coming in to waste your time. Yeah, you had someone
1: come by years ago named Wayne Turner. He mentioned you in his interview and said that you were instrumental in his quick rise. It, it's a testament to
2: the Shadow Program and to you. I appreciate that. Wayne Wayne was one of those guys that came in. He, he came prepared. He, he knew what he wanted to learn. And, um, I mean... The time in between appointments, he probably asked me 200 questions. Why did you ask that? What, what was important about that? I mean, he was there literally to learn. And I've had a lot of people that have had really nice success. Wayne just took it to a whole nother level. And Wayne, of course, as your, as your interview says, I mean, Wayne, Wayne shifted. He moved from one market to another, took the ideas, launched it in a new market, and is rocking there, too. That's right. That's pretty
1: cool. It's very cool. How many people do you think have shadowed you over the
2: years? I, I couldn't put a number on it. I really couldn't, I mean, 75, 80. So you've paid it forward.
1: You're moving that information, that
2: knowledge base along. Yep. Sure am. And it's fun. It's fun because then you see these people, you connect with them at, at real estate events and uh, you hear about what they're doing. And, and what's been really fun is a few of them have actually surpassed the business we're doing and have actually taken it to a whole nother level. And that's that's a pretty amazing feeling as well to see them really rock. Sam, how important is profitability in your business? Well, it's the key. I mean, why would we, why would we work as hard as we do? Why would we put the investment in if it didn't pay us back? I mean, it's huge. It's, it's a big part of why we're here.
1: Is your business profitable?
2: Yeah. I'd say we're, we've, even in the down markets, we've remained profitable.
1: Would you mind disclosing to us what your profit margin is as a percentage
2: of your gross? Sure. In the peak of the housing market, when things were absolutely insane, we were doing 63 64% of the gross revenue was falling back to the bottom line. So we were basically running under 40% expenses. So that was significant. We're right now floating in the 50% range because we're not moving as much inventory as we did. I mean, from 380 deals to 203, there's not as much not as much coming in as there was. But our expenses have obviously adjusted, too, because a lot of our expenses have gone to online expense. So that's helped us. That's a phenomenal net. How are you keeping your expenses down like that? We literally track absolutely everything that we do. So... We have, a, we have a virtual tour system that tracks how many people viewed our homes online each week. Now you would think, well, how does that keep your costs low? Well, if you keep monitoring what's generating a lot of traffic and what isn't, you quickly learn what you can get rid of. And so it helps us filter out expenses that are not generating huge rates of return. And, and so that's, that's how we're doing it. Also, I have an accountant, and I've had an accountant come to my office every week for over 20 years, every Friday morning at 9 o'clock, And any of the shadows that have come in on Friday have had to sit with me and and watch me do all my payroll and everything. She comes right to my office. We do the weekly P&L. We do all of our tracking on where we're at business-wise, what we've got coming in, what our pendings are, what our expenses are. I mean, all my bills actually go to their firm. They don't even come to me because I don't want to be distracted with that type of stuff except once a week for an hour. And it helps me stay focused on what I'm supposed to stay focused on. Is that a bookkeeper or an accountant? Both. She's an accountant, and she works for a CPA, and literally she's someone from her firm. For her, it's been 15 years. She comes every Friday. She's not an employee. She's a – you know, I, I contract the firm. So it, – but it's – the service is spectacular because it solves so many problems. Plus, my income tax preparation cost has gone way down because they have everything. They're the ones putting everything in the system. It
1: sounds like overkill. How expensive is that to have this person come in
2: each week? I'm paying about 15000 a year for service just for her to come in. And then I'm obviously paying for tax prep and all the stuff with my corporation. It's not a corporation. It's LLC. But I'm paying for that on top of it. But it's, it's really inexpensive when you look at what it does as far as my free time. I don't have to hire another employee to run that part of my business. It's much, much cheaper to be able to subcontract it. And I'm only, I'm only using her for an hour a week. I assume the big
1: benefit is that you're completely on top of your numbers. You know what they are every week. You know exactly what your position is
2: every week. Plus all my financials, all my like retirement, all my investments, everything, they're basically because they're handling a lot of clients. They do work for a major college that they help them with investing their money as well. I've got an inside track on other places I can go, not that they're divulging confidential information, but they just have some input because they're doing so much extensive research in 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 20 years I don't think I've ever been steered
1: wrong once so is that a major accounting firm like one of the big 6 is that a regional
2: or is it just a local firm the local firm and, and you would be shocked how business funnels from doing business with someone like that for so many years almost everyone at that accounting firm has bought or sold a house through me so it, it essentially pays for itself every single year i'm not kidding loyalty is worth a lot I mean it really is that's one thing in our business people overlook they they go online and they're going to buy this product this camera from some company you know five states away instead of supporting the local camera shop who's going to charge you more money but when there's a problem they're going to take care of you you know there's there's a mental and I don't know what's wrong with people sometimes how they don't see the big picture that by supporting some of the local businesses you literally are actually supporting yourself in the end but if those little businesses in small town go out, those folks don't have the ability to buy and sell real estate. Sam, how do you keep control of your time? I schedule everything. I mean, everything is booked in advance. I delegate a ton of stuff. Most of my clients don't care that I'm the guy that's doing it. They just want to know that it's done and it's done right. And uh, so I'm really good at delegating and I'm really good at scheduling things that I need to do personally and delegating the other stuff. How many hours are you working in a typical week? A typical week, 55 to 60 would be a very typical week week for me. I could certainly work less. I'm still having fun doing what I'm doing. I still enjoy the challenge. So I like to be very active in the business. Do you use a business plan? Yeah. Yeah, I've had a business plan for 20 years. When do you write that business plan up? Are you doing it once a year? Yeah, I I write the business plan once a year. It's usually sometime in October to November, depending on how things are going. I might modify that business plan four or five times during the year as things are changing. I can tweak it up, make some changes here and there. But yeah, it's it's made in advance. You don't make it January 1st. It's too late. You have to have all your marketing and all your other stuff already scheduled. So you want to do it in advance. How often do you refer to the business plan? Well, we're referring to the business plan at least once a week during that uh, meeting every Friday. So at some level, I'm referring to where we're at. Are we ahead? Are we behind? Do we need to ramp up some marketing in order to boost this area? Uh, is my spending on track with what we budgeted? So, so I mean, it's literally, it's every week. And, and then I have a Monday meeting every Monday morning at 9 o'clock with my team to talk about what they've got going, their buyers they're working with, what would it take to get that buyer that you just told me about to buy this week? Is there anything you can do to get them in contract? So we're constantly reviewing our business plan because of where everybody's at at any given time. Sam, what drives you? It's an interesting question. I I think the challenge of doing something that people said you couldn't do or doing something that's never been done I mean, my grandmother in the real estate business, who was a huge inspiration to me when, you know, I told her I wanted to do 100 transactions in a year, and she just rolled her eyes and said, nobody's ever done that before. I went, yeah, exactly. That's why I want to do it. I want to be the one. And in that very, that very year that I made that comment to her, we were the one. Then I wanted to be the one to do 200 transactions, and we did it. And then I wanted to do 300. We did it. And Then, then I wanted to do 365, and it took 10 years. But every year, that was my goal. That was my single most important goal other than profitability was we got to get to 365. I mean, About year six or seven, my, my team looked at me like I was crazy because we got really close, 309, 322. We were in the range. I just never gave up on the goal, and eventually everything lined up in 03, and we did it. So I just like that accomplishment. I like the challenge. I love competition. I love to have someone new get in the business and literally get a client from us one time. I, I love that feeling once, because it fires you up. You're like, you know, there is a point that you get a little relaxed, and someone grabs one of your clients, and they sell them a house, and it's like, hey, guys, we better pay attention. We could lose some, lose some business here. And I, I'll never forget, Alan Dom told me, this must have been 15 years ago, he said, anytime some, something like that happens, he considers it like a weed growing in his garden, and he wants to pluck that weed. And, and, and that's just, it's just so funny to think of a guy that does 700, 800 units a year. Those little things motivated him, and so, of course, he got motivated. So did I. Sam, why are you successful? I like to work hard. I mean, I'm, I'm all about getting the job done. I, I'm having fun. I'm still having fun doing what it is that I do every day. I still enjoy it. And so I think that's a lot of it. Plus, I'm pretty driven. I mean, I'm very goal-oriented. I'm, I'm real focused. When I'm at work, I want to be at work. When I'm away, I want to be away. Try to create a little bit of a separation there. And sometimes it's hard. I mean, I, I'm, some of my friends that know me well that see me at Real Estate Convention say I probably need to relax a little bit more. But again, I'm still having a lot of fun doing it.
1: Sam, if you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first?
2: Well, that would depend on where they're at and, and what their goal was. I guess the first thing I would do is, is I would figure out what their primary goal is. What's your goal for year one? What, what it is that you're trying to accomplish? Uh, and then basically try to help them build a, a very basic, very simplistic plan to get them through year one and help them achieve that goal. And Usually that goal at some level is I have to earn X amount of money in order to survive this year or to make it. And so you have to figure out how do you do that and then add about 20% to it so that they can actually grow and, and then break down how much they're going to work, how they're going to get that buyer. And, and that, that's, how, that's my approach. That's my approach to essentially everything is how are we going to go to the next level? How many buyers do we have to sell homes? How many sellers have to list with us? What percentage of those listings are actually going to sell so that it all contributes back to the bottom line? And then the biggest issue is how many hours am I going to personally work? How much money do I have to earn per hour in order to achieve that goal? Because if I don't, if I have to earn, and I'm just going to make up a number, I won't share the real number, but if I had to earn $250 an hour, if that was the goal, I can't be the guy putting the signs up, taking the photos of the home, printing the brochures. I can't be that guy. That can't be me. I have to be the one that's literally belly to belly with a buyer or seller, listing a home, showing a home, negotiating a contract. Those would be the things I would have to do because that's the highest and best use of your time. So, so then that's how I, I analyze almost everything. Do you think
1: that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable?
2: I think they're absolutely valuable. I think they're actually for the agents that want to keep driving and want to keep forging forward, that want to avoid burnout. They need to be, and then I don't want to use the word inspired because that maybe is not the right word, but they they need to hear other people having similar challenges and know that they've worked through them or hear a great idea that they would have never known Other than shadowing, I think it's the absolute best way to learn is to hear from other agents what what it is they're doing. Sam, I've come to the end of the
1: questions I want to ask. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of things. The first thing, and I've got a very huge pet peeve about our real estate industry right now, and that is that so many agents are saying, I sold 1,200 properties last year. And they didn't make a nickel they didn't clear they didn't clear a dime. they spent more money going out than they brought in, or they had you know thirty team members that are showing homes and that's not really a team they're running a big real estate brokerage and and I respect the business and what they have to do, but might as well be a real estate brokerage at that point. they're become more of a team leader or a office manager, so to speak, instead of still actively. Outlisted and selling real estate and and i know different people have different views but it just it always cracks me up when i hear someone that that two million dollars that hasn't paid their income tax in five years and you're just scratching your head going people are listening you know they're they're thinking this person's leading our industry when essentially they're going broke and nobody knows it you know what i'm talking about but
1: there's different people in different categories so you can't lump everyone into that category that's
2: making two million dollars in gross can you no, of course not. I mean, I, I know people that are making way more than that that are highly profitable. So I'm not saying that, that by itself, but it seems like most of your award systems that you're seeing at a lot of the big brokerages are focused strictly on dollar volume or GCI, but it doesn't show the big picture that they essentially spent every penny they had in order to get there and they weren't running a profitable business. And there's no way to really know who's profitable and who's not other than to look five years from now and see who's still here and who isn't. But it's very interesting because that's, that is a challenge, and I've run across a lot of people where that's been the case. So net profit
1: is more important than gross revenue?
2: Uh, by far. I mean, if you don't have it left when it comes time to retire, you can't spend it. So if I would earn X amount of money and I spend X plus 10%, I'm going to go out of business really soon. And we saw it. I mean, uh, part of my frustration with this is I saw this happen in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010 with good people, good real estate agents that didn't understand the difference between gross income and net profit. They didn't get it. They thought they were on a a treadmill and they could just turn it up faster and they would survive. And what they learned is when their business fell off, they were out of business because they fixed operating expenses were so high to run that business that it did them in, because it took them six months to a year to figure out what had happened. And by then, they were financially committed to all those overhead expenses, and they were gone. So, and if you look at our industry and look how fast people are falling out, it's probably the most important thing they can learn is gross income isn't net profit. It's not, it's not what you make, it's what you keep.
1: And that's probably a lesson at all levels. You're talking about the upper end, but that applies from day one when you start, that you need to have a profit. You need to have money that you're taking home at the end of the day and not be spending it all plus more and, and end up upside down.
2: Absolutely. And, and you have to be a provider. I mean, you have to provide for your family. I mean, you've got a plan for the future. There's, our business is an up and down business. We get in the hot cycles. We get in the soft cycles. We're still, right now, my team is profitable in what I would consider a pretty, pretty lengthy down cycle overall as far as the economy is concerned. And we're still doing great. We've adjusted. We had to tweak some of the things that we were doing from the other market, but we made the adjustment. The lesson is that just because you're generating more
1: business doesn't mean you're going to make more profit. You have to be looking at the big picture of what's going on and make sure that there's money falling to the bottom line.
2: Yeah, it's a great way to say it, and the requirement to that is monitoring. You have to monitor where you're at. I mean, you can't roll around at April 15th when it's time to file income taxes and go, oh my gosh, I lost $100,000. I didn't make a penny this year. I went backwards. You can't do that very long, or
1: you're out of business. And you're solving that by tracking it weekly. Have you had weeks where you've been upside
2: down? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I can give you some very good examples. In uh, late 2007, the market had taken such a dip value-wise, but when I was meeting with sellers, I didn't have any statistical data. There was no homes that had recently sold that could prove what was taking place because the sales cycle is usually three to six months behind. So I would go in the house. I knew the market was down, but I couldn't prove it to you because you would say the neighbor's house four months ago just sold for X. And it was true. That house did sell for X. So yeah, there was a point we were getting what were good offers on the homes. My sellers didn't think they were good offers. and It was very difficult to convey it until we had enough market data. And in a small market, it was probably even harder for us because the number of sales isn't like a big metro area like Columbus, Ohio. You know, so it made it even more difficult. So sure, yeah, I wrote checks out of my pocket. My accountant was screaming at me every Friday, you've got to get your numbers up or we're going to have to do something. So and that's where we just had to start making some changes. But my point is it's, it's, it's too late for a lot of people if they don't monitor. They have to watch their bottom line. They can't spend their way to success in every case. But you were able to make
1: adjustments because you were monitoring. You saw that it was trending. You were able to change before it was too late. And maybe that's a strong piece of advice right there. Yeah, I think it is. Sam, you've been around for quite a while, 26 years. You've seen a lot of ups and downs, a lot of trends. Where do you see the housing
2: market going? I think the market is going to continue to tighten up. Even though there are pockets of the market that are improving and values are stabilizing and some are actually going up in value and even multiple offer situations are taking place in some markets, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think people still need to really watch their business really close. There's always going to be business for top agents that are willing to commit themselves, but the market's not done. I think we're going to see another adjustment because there's so much shadow inventory relating to pre-foreclosures and foreclosures out there that I don't think think we're totally out of the woods yet. And I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm saying that for people to just be a little bit cautious and to watch their numbers real close and stay focused on their business.
1: Well, Sam, you make an excellent point. At first, I thought meeting with your accountant every week was overkill. But your ability to keep tight control of your expenses and high net profits is proof that it works it shows how dedicated you are to your profession. It is these little details that all add up to your incredible results. You have shadowed dozens of top agents and have been shadowed by dozens more. You epitomize the idea that we must all share with each other in order to grow. Thank you again for being our Top Agent of the Month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who Rose from the ashes of defeat, rebuilt his business, and sold 461 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next Success Call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward.
0: You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent, Interview of the Month Club where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.